and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. Now, it's a little bit different this week because Jace is flying solo. He had a conversation with John Stewart, who's the guitarist from Sleeper, also played in bands like The Wedding Present, but he was on to talk about his book. So I'll leave you in Jace's capable hands and he's going to pick up the story. I think your story starts, doesn't it, when you were studying politics at Manchester? university yeah i went through um i went through a sort of standard 80s sheffield childhood which was um pretty much uh well the minor strike was a big thing and then um and then basically um not much else happened and i went to university and studied politics which was basically uh, marxism degree uh, because that's the options i chose I was, I was interested in how that 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 set of ideas explain the world and and what had happened to the sort of industrial decline I was witnessing where I grew up uh, and um, yeah that I guess that's kind of shaped my outlook I wouldn't describe myself today as a as a Marxist I'm not I'm not even particularly lefty actually I'm sort of apolitical now um, one Marx was a big fan of Charles Darwin and sent him a copy of Capital, actually, funnily enough. And and I don't believe Darwin ever replied. But um, I, I kind of there was a book out when I was doing my degree called Sociobiology, which is which is an evolutionary psychology foundational text. And I remember it coming out and reading it as a student and thinking, uh, well, it came out just before I was a student. But I remember seeing it on bookshelves and thinking, oh, that's interesting. I was told not to read it because it's it's the anti-Marx text. It was a <laughs> It's, it's a debate that's been revived recently by Steven Pinker in his book, The Blank Slate, which looks at that idea about do we have a do we have a human nature or not? And um, it's the old nature nurture debate. And so I never read it. Um, and I think probably Marx would have really enjoyed it, actually, and been quite a fan of it. Um, one of my lecturers was Norman Garris, who was an authority on on Marx and human nature and argued that did Marx did have, argued that Marx did have a position on human nature. He literally wrote the book on it. And um uh, Norman Garris, who sadly passed away a few years ago. So I kind of got interested in that whole working class pol- politics. And then um, later in life, just kind of re- reinvigorated my interest in ev- what is now known as evolutionary psychology, which is the last chapter of the book. And that's so, yeah, it's a combination of Dylan and Lennon, my two favorite songwriters, and Marx, because I think it's an interesting way of looking at the world, taken through a, a guy who analysed protest music in America uh, and a, 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 a literary theorist, Frederick Jameson, uh, R. Serge Denisov, the protest music analyst, sociologist, and Frederick Jameson, the literary theorist, they they look at, uh, through them, I look at Dylan and Lennon's protest and their their idea of their heritage and then the last chapter is this kind of evolutionary psychology analysis of their belief systems that pulls out from one issue which is anti-war protest songs in the 60s through to a kind of a broader historical look at 19th century heritage that both artists displayed that's often overlooked 
and then into the grand issue of of um who who are we and why are we here and what does it mean to be human through through the you know the long history of of evolution human evolution and how that's put a stamp on who we are today in in issues around uh, largely with them around their belief systems which are very different but share a lot of similar um processes i would argue yeah well i mean i've literally just finished i read the last bit the appendix two bit i read just before uh, which is Dylan's relationship with the other Beatles, not Lennon. We should, we should say, actually, the book we're talking about is Dylan, Lennon, Marks and God that came out. Did it come out just before Christmas? It was supposed to come out early February and then Cambridge University, they, 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 they delayed publication because of COVID and then they forgot to push the button on it. So it came out to a yawning <laughs> chasm of zero publicity about two weeks before Christmas. But perfectly, a new book coming out just before Christmas, just as Get Back is coming out. Yeah, but I forgot to tell anyone. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's just in, in our world, it's just come out or it's out. It's due out next week, although you can actually <laughs> buy it and have been able to buy it for a while. <laughs> but I mean, I, I say I've just finished reading it and I, it, I, it just blew my mind, if I'm perfectly honest. And, and I, I mean, to describe it. I mean, it kind of starts, I think, with the the premise of um, so Dylan starts as a protest singer, but as as he moves forward throughout his career, he kind of is leaving that in the background. Whereas Lennon starts singing "Love, Love Me Do" and so on, and then develops into a protest singer with "Give Peace a Chance" and "Imagine" and, and so on. And at some point, probably in the late sixties, they kind of cross. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, start to diverge again after that. But at, at some point in the late 70s, they seem to come round mm. together again. So it's, it's this concept of dual biography, which which I took from um, an American uh, woman called Eloise Knapp Hay, who was the first person to really write about it. And she argued that a good dual bi- in a good dual biography, you learn more about the people involved than you would in an individual biography. Um, and um, and and with those two, the protest songs is is a really good comparison. And I'm looking particularly at international politics and anti-war songs because domestic politics it would look probably look quite different. But in the issue of in, of anti-war politics, Dylan starts off as a traditional American folk songwriter, and he's writing these uh, what Arthur Denisoff, the great Marxist sociologist, calls magnetic songs, which are problem solution and the solution is the class-based answer of former revolutionary communist party and overthrow the system basically (laughs) (laughs) uh and uh and 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 so you state the issue and that comes to the american tradition of you know woody guthrie or the wobblies and the songwriters in the early early working class movements in america in the early 20th century um and pete dylan writes this one song plague boys and playgirls which is which is this fantastic analysis of american politics pete seeger falls in love with it tells says it's going to be sung by a million people before the years out and and about a year after starting writing political songs still it just backs off completely and explains why ironically in 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 song um but essentially he doesn't want to get shot i think is the real reason and and as the 60s progressed he had famously banned members leave because they didn't want to be stood alongside him on stage because they felt it was a it was a risky place to be because he was such a powerful political voice, but 
throughout that whole time, he he watered down his politics very much. So he starts off with really trenchant, you know, masters of war, which is a brilliant critique of 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 the military industrial complex. And and then three years later, he's writing Tombstone Blues, which is an anti or Highway sixty one, both of which are anti Vietnam War songs. But you have to completely decode them to realize that. So he 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 waters down the politics, and he goes from this traditional campaigning song into a much more rhetorical, you know, obscure statement of politics based much more around feelings and 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 metaphors and coded observations. And Lennon takes the opposite journey. Lennon's because he's in the biggest boy band in the world, he starts off writing quite coded songs. And all his politics comes in his books, which are very full of real trenchant political statements. But his songs are things like, you know, the word. And the word is love. So it's essentially a peace song quite early on, I, I argue. But then all you need is love. It's a more, a more um, overt articulation of that idea. And then he ends up one of being one of the last people in the late 60s, early 70s, writing these traditional protest songs such that, you know, give peace a chance. And um, in fact, he follows up Imagine with an entire album of, of classic magnetic problem solution protest songs which is sometime in new york city which absolutely bombs because it's now so outside the zeitgeist of what protest music should be and i just thought denisov although it's quite an old way of look he was a sociologist in the 60s and founded some of the big uh, or one of the big academic journals on popular music studies but it was a long time ago not not that many people his ideas are still used but he's not really written about that much today but i just thought it was a good way of comparing them and it shows they do cross over about 65 um you know dylan's completely abdicated the role lennon's taking it up and of course subsequently it is john who's shot he's shot because he's the political beetle you know they didn't he didn't come after ringo (laughs) no one's gonna assassinate the guy who's narrating thomas tank engine that'll be no that'd be terrible you'd never get out of prison (laughs) if you did that oh hang on (laughs) <laughs> he's still waiting for parole isn't he but he um, is, yeah you know i guess it didn't make much difference but yeah so that i just thought it was an interesting journey in that respect that they, so, they were on i can only assume when you write a book like this and the way that you've decoded both dylan and lennon's lyrics you must have been a massive fan before you decided to take this on yeah, huge fan. I just wanted to do it justice, really. And it's it's quite difficult to write about them in original ways. Um, and it's also become quite quite unfashionable to write about them because, you know, we're in a, a period when we're decolonising the curriculum uh, in, in cultural studies. But again, you know, with the with the history chapters, the, there's a lot of relevant stuff there because they are so mired in 19th century and their view of it. And um, I just, it's based on my PhD. And I just thought, if you're going to do a PhD, do it about something that you love because you're going to get if you don't you it's going to it's going to be hard anyway if you're not doing it about something that you you genuinely love then you just you haven't got a chance of completing it so that's why that's why i picked and that's that's what the script's based on which is it's quite a scholarly work although it's tidied up for you know i took some of the long words out a, a lot you of took some of the long words out jesus christ i read it with a dictionary mm. by myself <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit. It is. It's it's uh. It's quite. You know, you can. There's quite a lot in there. Yeah, apologies for that. I should. No, probably... it's it's interesting though because it, it 
What I did like when you talk about the um, sort of like Lenin's 19th century attitudes mm. with uh, every, everybody, everybody has watched, everybody I know has watched the Beatles documentary over Christmas because quite frankly, you need several days to be able yes. to consume it all. Uh, and and we were t- and we were talking we were talking in the kitchen at bim actually loads of us um about it and and i'd always the way i view it and i don't know if right or wrong that because the beatles started a couple of years before the stones and the stones are effective whilst i know they're not actually from london they are from mm. london and the beatles are from you know a northern outpost if you like and and i would imagine to me the two diff two years difference between the first album sort of thing mm-hmm. is a huge t- I, the, the stones have a 20th century attitude and the, that's why the beatles do music hall songs yeah. and, and so on it, it just that little bit of i suppose geography and a couple of years is a completely shift and, it, and i thought it was really interesting that when let it be comes out the stones have got let it bleed come out mm. which are, and and as much as I love the Beatles, I watched that documentary in complete awe and I went, they had to stop now because it just seemed so out of step mm. with that late 60s, early 70s, Vietnam War. Everything's getting a little bit darker. Yeah. And you've got to think about their influences. They're, they're really mired in that musical tradition. You know, George Formby mm. was a massive influence on the Beatles. Yeah. And, and no one really thinks of that because it's not cool, but it's true. And and um, I guess it, it's that musical working class pre television entertainment that they did so much to to break through. You know, like the first working mm. class voices on British television, for example. But within that, I argue in the book, there's that goes really deep. It's really hidden in there. So, and the first place you see it is in Lennon's writing, because much like with his protest, he's he can express himself much more clearly because he's not bound by the strictures of being in a boy band and having to write Love Me Do. So in his books, it's, it's full of class and, and heritage and, and lots of metaphors about the empire and people going to strange lands far away and meeting weird animals and stuff, which is a classic sort of British empire narrative. And then um, it, it appears in songs in this sort of fascination he's got for the 19th century and the probably the biggest example is is mr kite where that's when you when you work out what that song's about it's a poster for for um a benefit show for a performer who's leaving the circus and he's a horseback performer the reason why the british circus in the 1800s had a tradition of horseback performance was because of all the cavalrymen coming back from the empire with nothing to do but they were just brilliant horsemen. So they then joined the circus and became trick, trick horse riders. And that's comp- obviously a tradition that's now completely gone, but it's absolutely founded in, in the back end of the Hundred Years' War and, and the British uh, various horse horse campaigns that happened around the world in Spain and and against Napoleon and stuff. And when those when those things wound down, these guys came home and were like, right, oh, I better join the circus. And then... So it's mired in empire, and then and then he th- this character, which is a true story, obviously based on a poster that Lennon bought in a in a junk shop or, or an antique shop, and then the the Mister Kite's retiring or is injured or he has to stop performing for some reason, and there's no social security. So this is a workers' benefit 
for a retiring performer. Uh, and he's in uh, this, a circus owned by, by somebody who turns out to be the biggest black media figure in, in Victorian Britain, which is Pablo Fank, the circus owner, who, who probably from North India, but no one's really quite sure, who, who owned this huge circus. And he was very much the, 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 the big charity figure of his day. And he would do these benefits on a regular basis because he made so much money. So the story of the, the way the British working class is entwined with, with the greater narratives of being in the empire and, and how kind of um, diverse our culture is and how some of our traditions are founded in spin-offs of that process of exploring the world and exploiting it and bringing it home and stuff. Uh, are, are, are riven throughout Lennon's songs, and I think it's it's particularly visible at that. But you don't really notice it until you actually start to think, "Hang on, what's what's this all about?" And it, it just sounds like an acid nonsense song, but it it's not. And, and obviously, a lot a lot of his other songs in that in that frame are doing the same thing. You know, sound it it sounds tomorrow never knows. Just sounds like a drug trip, but it's actually based on a on a, a European adaptation of a sacred Indian text. So it's actually about dying and, and meeting God and then being reincarnated, which is strong Vedic tradition that runs right through Lennon's work. There's loads of, much as Dylan has hundreds and hundreds of metaphors uh, from the Bible, Lennon from quite early on is drawing from uh, Vedic traditions in his work, in his, um, in, in his first book, you know, it's, this whole idea that Dylan introduced them to can- the Beatles to cannabis, which is nonsense. Lennon had been mm-hmm. smoking cannabis for years. In fact, he'd written about it in his book. He'd written about Indian hump in his book before he met, which came out just before he met uh, Bob Dylan. I was going to say, weren't they smoking it in Hamburg? Anyway? Of course, yeah, they were smoking it probably 1960 in Liverpool is when they had their first. But it's gone down yeah. in history as being this moment when he probably, it's probably the first time they had grass, possibly, if they were playing yeah. in America. Um, but there's there's a famous moment in in uh, the the first Hard Day's Night movie where where Lennon snorts at the top of a Coke bottle and like does does a bit of eyebrow raise. So he's literally punning on snorting Coke and turns to Wilfred Bramfell and, and does this sort of cheeky little grin. So so he's he's very well you know aware of various drug tropes and um, it, one of his early references is references to cannabis is to indian hemp you know so this whole tradition at the same time in help they're pictured sort of wandering into a curry house being all confused about indian culture and what's all this stuff you know but and the whole the whole film's about them you know being chased around the world by this kind of bizarre racist portrayal of a of this kind of strange indian figure um yeah i think they're probably quite familiar with lots of those ideas and um yeah, so it's it, it's it's in fact it's mired in their songs. If you particularly Lennon, if you scratch beneath the surface, uh, all along it transpires. I think. I, I mean, his dad was in the Merchant Navy. His dad spent years sailing around the world from port to port. Uh, the, the whole reason the British Navy existed was it wasn't to go and conquer the world. It was to guard the Merchant Navy. The British Empire was essentially a trading system. It start you know started with trade in India. I mean, a slightly coercive form of trade, but yeah. <laughs> nonetheless trade, you know, the British yeah. India Company was all about exploiting natural resources from India. And the, the Navy was to was to defend those trading ships and from pirates initially. And that's what 
you know that's what Lenin's dad did. His 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 whole his whole life was was mired in that tradition as well. And then he's, he had grandparents who allegedly, if you believe some of the stories, went went over to America and performed in minstrel shows over there. In fact, that's why he learned the banjo. That was from um, Lennon's grandfather, who was apparently a banjo player, because um, he brought one back from America, allegedly, you know. Yeah. So it's fascinating that those links run deep. you got to remember... If you went to school in the United Kingdom in in the 1950s, your strong possibility your teacher would have been born when Queen Victoria was alive. Yeah, that's the so tradition you grew up in. You know. Yeah. In fact, if you went to school in the 70s, like I did, there was a good chance your teacher was born when Queen Victoria was on the throne. <laughs> yeah, my 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 dad had a very 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 much a Victorian childhood. You know, and and then there's all the things around that. You know, maps on the walls with all the bits of the empire, coloured pink and sun never yeah. set on, on all that stuff. And um, and then obviously the Beatles come to being the biggest British export since the British Empire, just as the British Empire is collapsing. So it, every, every year in the sixties, about eight or nine countries disassociate from the British Empire, ter- former Empire territories leave the, the empire just. Every year when the Beatles are conquering new land with the power of song, uh, those self-same countries are withdrawing from the from the, the, the British Empire and becoming part of the Commonwealth, and now you know leaving the Commonwealth uh, as it transpires. So yeah, it's it's all there. I think if you scratch under the surface. So I, I, I get the impression that this book is taking you. A long time to write, probably forty years in the making or something. <laughs> But, but how long did it actually take you to write it? Well, I did it on and off over a few years. It's based on a PhD script. So it, start, it started off as a... St- it began as a story about protest songs. I wanted to know where, after the Gulf War in 2003 to five or whenever that sort of finished, I just I was struck by the lack of protest music. And I started writing about that. That's what my PhD was going to be. And I kind of concluded that there wasn't any anti-war protest music because we didn't have conscription. Whereas in the Vietnam period, we did have, well, America had conscription, hence huge amounts of protest songs. And if we would have had conscription, which came quite close in the United States because they were running out of troops and sending people for the third or fourth tour of, of, of Afghanistan. And in fact, recently that war has finished with America losing. So they Vietnam themselves in Afghanistan quite conspicuously, um, as have we, partly because they've run out of troops. People don't want to go back anymore. And, um, and, and and troops and treasure, they haven't, haven't got them. They're not going to make it work, it transpires. So, um, yeah, I was just interested in where where the absence of protest music was and why that was such an important thing in the 60s. And that turned into a book chapter, which I got published in a in a in um, an academic work uh, on protest music. And then off the back of that, I just couldn't get beyond Dylan and Lennon and their anti-war songs. So I just thought this is turning into more of a thing about them. And that's when it became a PhD. So it did take a while, but it was done in, you know, um, in in periods of intense activity followed by periods of not doing very much because I was other things were going on, like my job and stuff. So it took yeah. a few years. And then after PhD, my supervisor very kindly sent the script to Cambridge University Press and they were like, yeah, stick it out. We love it. Another book by Cambridge Press that was like a, a series of 
articles about the Rolling Stones that have been compiled in a book, to be honest, but they were proper academic pieces of work about the Rolling Stones. And it was just like a very different way of, because whilst I can see your library of books about the Beatles behind you, that what you can see behind me is essentially the same thing on the Rolling Stones. Oh, excellent. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think I'll be writing a PhD on the Rolling Stones though. Uh, <laughs> But um, my favourite book on, on them in the in the weird and wacky, as we were talking about before we started recording, is uh, Up and Down with the Rolling Stones, which was written by their drug dealer. Ah, superb. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Tony Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, amazingly, they sued to get that one stopped. Had to pick up a, a second-hand copy of it somewhere. They're the best ones to get. The ones that got stopped are always the best books. The ones that are no longer in print, yeah. Yeah, and there's quite a lot on Dylan and Atlanta, particularly the Beatles. But um, yeah, the uh, and the, the eyewitness stories because they can be quite valuable. They're not, you know, they're often they're not academic ones, but they their first person narratives of what happened, and some often they mm. clash as well. So that's it was interesting to find some of those. The the and some what people get wrong is interesting that there's a famous song that Dylan and Len- Lennon never wrote together called Pneumonia Ceilings. Which which was which was the product of their meeting in London in 1966 when they were filmed in the back of a car, and it's completely fictional. It's it's in a fictionalized novel about the rise of the Beatles called Paperback Writer. But so much did we want Dylan Lennon to work together that it, it's transpired to be recorded in Michael Gray's superb Bob Dylan Encyclopedia in both editions of it with all the lyrics. <laughs> Um, and it's now there's versions of it on Spotify that people have done. So there's so so much did we want Dylan and Lennon to work together that a song they never wrote together is now available on Spotify, which I kind of it is interesting. Love that. It's interesting though, isn't it, when you consider that George Harrison well was in a band mm. with him, yeah, uh, and had re- and he toured with. I think he did the uh, the Rolling Thunder. He played on that mm. for some of the dates and, and stuff. And it's like the, I wonder whether because they're both quite strong personalities mm. that they could never actually work together. The great thing about George Harrison is he seems to be able to bend yes. and fold around whoever he's with. It's interesting that because, you know, there's, I think as a musicians really only understand this stuff. I mean, the get back film is a great example. All the journalists who aren't musicians are saying how boring it is. Everybody I know who's a musician, who's ever sat in a room, tried to work out a song with a group of other people has gone. This is just incredible. And yeah. and it really separates the the wheat from the chaff in that respect, and I think that's a fantastic observation that probably only a musician would make because <gasps> I'm a musician. I'm speaking as a sort, so I've <laughs> called myself a sort of a musician. Um, but that idea that I think when you work with people, like I've been lucky enough to play with, I've played on the KD Lang record. I was on your Wikipedia page. I don't know if you've created the Wikipedia page, but some someone's created a Wikipedia page. I didn't know. And, and, it, and, and it talks about the KD Lang, um, is it Invincible? Yes. Summer yeah. You're on? But, it's... but also, Mel C's Reason album, which I listened to this afternoon. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is all right, actually. Somebody, uh, somebody... Uh, I was walking up right at seafront during the pandemic. Someone had a tattoo of that on that cover on their leg. And I was like, <laughs> you've got, to, I'm on that record. They were like, oh yeah, it's my favourite album. And it, and it was all very Brighton. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think when you've worked with strong personality lead 
lead singer people, as I've been lucky enough to do, given the sort of modicum of talent I've got as a musician, you, when you, and Harrison understood how to work around other people. So he works really well with Dylan and, and their collaborations together are, are quite outstanding because he's so musical and and you can tell the songs that they wrote together because the sort of guitar figures that he has and the chord changes and stuff that Dylan wouldn't have come up with. And that's Harrison very gently kind of um, putting himself in, in, in the music alongside this guy who's, who's his idol. And then when Dylan and Lennon meet, I know it was only the one time it's captured on film in the back of the car in 1996 and 1966. They're both so freaked out by each other's uh, aura that I don't think anything would have happened. A bit like when Dylan worked with Johnny Cash, you would have thought that was going to be great. But if you actually listen to that session, it doesn't quite work because who's going to tell Johnny Cash you're coming in wrong? And, and who's going to tell Bob Dylan that's, that's not quite working? You know, whereas if you're George Harrison, you spend your whole life working out how to very gently say to McCartney or or Lennon, you know, how about we do how about we do it this way, you know, and then make them think it's their idea all along, and then that's mm. how you fix a song. If you're sort if you're not the alpha male in the group, that's how those things work. So he's very skilled at that, and I think only a musician would have, would have noticed that. Cool. Which, so which is I, why there needs to be could... more musicians writing about music i think that's i think that's really important there's way i mean i love the amount of scholarship on popular music that's happened in the last 20 years but not nearly enough of it is by people who are musicians i, I do think i think that's one of the things that when we were all sat in the kitchen at, at bim talking about get back it is that complete awe of watching the, the you know there's the bit where like McCartney is at the piano. I, th- I think it's Letty B he's playing and he's going, ding, 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 ding. No, not that one. Mm. No, no, I'm, no, that one, that one. He's like, oh God, we've all done that. You know, mm. he can't figure out what the next chord should be. And it's just such a wonderful moment sort of thing, you know. And when he's kind of right and get back and he's just like strumming the bass, well, left-handed like that, Um and it's just, it's just like you're seeing this stuff sort of unfold in front of your eyes, and it's just really exciting. I mean, it, it didn't feel like eight and a half, no. nine hours to me. It was, yeah, that's the magic, isn't it? We've all got, and, and that's the other thing that I think there's a famous quote where uh, a journalist is sort of asking a sort. I can't remember who it was, a songwriter or a musician, about how they create this incredible magic, and and the person's just like, well, it's practice, actually. And uh, just, yeah, but it's like you, you just generate this incredible stuff out of the ether and it's just it has such an effect on people. And, and the guy's like, yeah, I practice a lot, you know, and, and, and the journalist can't understand where this incredible magic comes from. And the musician just keeps saying, well, it's, yeah, it's practice. It's the old 10,000 hours thing, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, uh, and they did those 10,000 hours in, in Hamburg, Hamburg before anybody heard them. Yeah, yeah, and again, that's a very much a sort of a post-war situation for them to be in and that sort of unusual experience that they had entertaining over there and that must have been really bizarre to be in hamburg in the 60s i think quite a, mm. quite a, quite a, a unique cultural moment i was reading about um because obviously this stuff's kicking off in ukraine you know Konigs, konigsberg which is now a russian city on the on what was danzig you know what was the German city? It's now completely populated by Russians. After the war, they kicked all the Germans out. I mean, not many people realize how many Germans died uh, on the long trail back from the, 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 
East Eastern Europe, where they tried to expand for Liebendram and all that stuff. Mm. And they were just, I mean, some it's possible two million Germans died in, in Eastern Europe after the war through starvation and freezing to death. And uh, uh, thousands drowned in the Baltic Sea in the winters after the war when they were being kicked out. To, and when I say thousands, I mean tens of thousands drowned. And no one, no one obviously, post-World War II, no one cared uh, yeah. because of what had happened. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, it's the stuff that happened, particularly around the 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 vulnerable populations particularly women in Berlin and stuff that there's been a bit of history around that and the, the horror stories around that but more generally that post-war period that the Beatles inserted themselves into in Hamburg as British young drunk British musicians in this major port with Lennon stumbling around doing you know throwing up Sieg Heil straight arm salutes left right and centre and having to be protected by the 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 club bouncer on a regular basis um you know, just because he thought it was funny, because he's that's got that sort of, you know, just ab- absolute crazy head on him, and probably quite drunk as well, I would imagine at the time. And then continuing to do that, there's a fantastic bit of film where he does it at the the Hard Days Night premiere in Liverpool. Him and Ringo walk out to the balcony, ten thousand people, and Liverpoolians. It's the big northern premiere of a heart. And Lennon throws up his right arm, and you could read his lips. She has to see Kyle. And Ringo's like, what the fuck are you doing? And sorry for swearing. And I imagine he's, he F bombed him. And he's like, take your arm down. And Lennon puts his arm down and looks a bit sheepish. But then either just before that or just after that, they arrive in Australia when Ringo's not there. And um, Lennon does the same thing in front of 10,000 people in, I think it's Adelaide, one of the Australian cities where the Beatles are there. And everyone's just freaked out because the Beatles are in Australia. And the rest of the band do it. There's that picture of, in the book, which cost me quite a lot of money to license, actually. It's the most expensive picture in the book of them on the hotel balcony in Australia, all three of them doing a, doing a Roman salute. And and the, all the dignitaries just laughing their heads off. I think it's hilarious. Because yeah, Ringo, I... Ringo, the conscience of the Beatles, it transpires, wasn't there. George <laughs> has got his arm up. Who'd have thought that? Lovely Buddhist George Harrison. Doing a... I do wonder, it, it, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where you can say it's just one of, it's it's a symptom of the times because you you know mm. you'd got in the seventies you got Freddie Starr yes. running around mm. on TV and 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 all of that and it's just it was just kind of it was very it was very funny in the seventies it's just not very funny. It, it shows how history imprinted on their work and there is a moment which is on YouTube there's a link there's a link to it in the book where Lennon walks out of an elevator backstage it must be what I've tried to find out which it's a service elevator. It's a backstage, you know, equipment, technical elevator. It's all graffitied with chalk all around it. And he walks out and he's in the middle of it. He's surrounded by a TV crew. They're conducting a sort of walking, walk and talk interview with him. How's he finding New York? It's their first night in a hotel in New York. And it's, so it's either the, the big TV station they did or it's backstage at, at the show they did there, and, um, which, which was never filmed, that, that particular show. And... Um, uh, someone's chalked what looks like a giant swastika really high up on the wall and he stops the interview and he makes the case look at that look at that you stamp that out you've got to stamp that he's really angry to see it up there turns out it's it's backwards it's because the swastika is a hindu symbol and it's yeah. the it's the sub i don't know how you say it, it's subustika or something like that which is the backwards version but he takes it for a genuine piece of 
fascist graffiti and gets really upset such that he interrupts the interview and makes the cameraman capture it and says you've got to stop this what's going on here so it's fascinating the jocularity and then the seriousness that uh that, that i've worked really hard to try and find out i was looking at like building maps of the the ed sullivan television theater and then the 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 gig that they did which is um can't remember the name of the, the big new york venue that they played there and i Still wasn't the garden, was it? No, it's the it's the the um the big white theatre on the corner there. I can't remember. It's the big New York theatre. I can't remember the name. The one where everyone goes to when the it's the one where Robert Johnson nearly played and got killed. I can't remember. It's the big uh, it's the big New York theatre. Which reminds me, actually, a couple of years ago, I was in New York and you emailed me and said, "I've got a new album coming out," and I was like, "Cool, I'm in New York." <laughs> And uh, so I bought it whilst I was sat on my hotel bed. Oh, wow. Um, and it was waiting for me when I got back. So that, and that would have been 2019? Yeah, 2018, maybe, I think. Yeah. The Sleeper album. Yeah, 18, 19. Album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just wanted to, I wanted to touch on, on Sleeper because for the way, what I remember, you split up late 90s. I read that you went off and moved to California, yep. Los Angeles. Why not? Brilliant. You do a couple of albums of session work. There is an album on Spotify called U- by UFO Bro. I don't yeah. know if you were on that one. I played with them, but I'm not on that record. But I played on the tour for that album, yeah, which I really love that record, actually. Yeah, I, I was mm. really enjoying listening to it today. Mm. And then then you come back and you join BIM and you you start and bin must have been right in its infancy at that point yeah are you still playing guitar or have you just actually stopped making music i joined i joined a band in brighton called chimp which well i actually started managing so i just love their music um and uh and then the second album they were like do you want to play some guitar and it was like yeah sure so i played and did some shows with them and then after that, didn't do very much at all for about 10 years. Played at a friend's wedding um, and then hung up the guitar after that. And so, yeah, that so friend's now, when you get... <laughs> his daughter's now quite grown up and they're divorced. <laughs> so it's been, you know, it's that long ago. Yeah. That long. So what happens when you get the call? You know, sleeper, shall we reform? Do you just look at your guitar and go, shit? How did you play that? Pretty much, although fortunately the Sleeper songs were never that complicated in the first place, so it didn't take that <laughs> long to relearn them. But, um, well, I had to, I, I'd, le- I'd loaned out all my pedals over the years, so I had to replace them, which cost a fortune. Although fortunately they all come in smaller versions now, so much more portable. And um, I, got, I had to get my, I used to have a lovely old Marshall head that I got reconditioned, and then no one uses Marshall heads anymore in 4 by 12 so then I ended up buying a smaller version uh, I got given a victory actually, which sounds which sounds pretty cool, the white one. And um I've actually got a victory in a one by twelve, like a one by twelve Marshall cab, which I don't use live, it's not quite beefy enough, but so that the gears all shrunk and uh had we all we'd kept hold of the original guitars, so had to have most of them rewired because they'd just been sat around not doing very much for a while. And one of them's um refretted. But yeah, the the just got the old gear up and started working out what I'd done on the various songs. And um, I mean, in the intervening years, I'd, I'd, I'd 
got sober as well. So I found it all a lot easier, actually, the second time around, because it mm-hmm. wasn't distracted by being a, an idiot. Um, I could just get on with, um, you know, working out what I'd done the first time around, which wasn't that complicated. The the wedding present stuff was more difficult, although they're another quite simple band to play, but that's like um, Peter's my guitar hero. So getting his stuff note perfect, which I think I've done on, uh, on, on the Sea Monsters album, which is a huge album. To be able to play that from start to finish with no breaks no 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 word from david pretty much as accurately as ever as it's ever been played since it was written because i've studied all the video of everyone the guitarist has had over the years that's been quite quite cool and i i couldn't have done that if sleeper hadn't reformed that's for sure i'd, so, I'd have so been struggling from... <laughs> i'd have been struggling to do that you go from not playing for about 10 years yeah. to all of a sudden being in two touring bands yeah or almost within what 18 months of each of them yeah yeah and by invitation i wouldn't i wouldn't have chosen to do it, but i couldn't say no because i'm just such a fan of particularly bizarro actually um i mean that's got like a nine minute take me which is a nine minute song uh which is for me what the greatest indie song I've ever written i just love it and then just huge riffs as well massive riffs and very simple, harmonically not very challenging, but very much, I guess much like the Pixies were, mm. stuff that, or Velvet Underground, although some of their stuff is quite quite well written, actually, obviously. But some of their simple stuff, you know, there's not a lot going on there musically in terms of chords and scales, but it's just such a great tune. And um, I think... I think Louise as a songwriter is, is similar as well. Just very, very good ear for a top line. And I will also say for Louise, a brilliant lyricist, amazing lyricist. So as a guitarist, I'm just trying to keep up really and not make it shit over the years. I, I always thought that her literary career that sort of came post Sleeper was a really obvious mm. step. Mm. I mean, I read the, um, for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called now, the sort of like, the the summing up of Sleeper, the autobiography, yeah, the memoir sort of thing, it's, yeah, it's brilliant, really. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. That it's a superb book. It's really nice to have a friend sort of write the memoir when you're in it a lot. Yeah, that was really <laughs> convenient. I can remember a lot of it. So, <laughs> and and uh, I've got Steve McQueen by yeah. her as well, um, which is a great book as well. Uh, so, <laughs> so it just seems to be Matt. So wedding present. Have, have I read this correctly that you're releasing two songs a month for all of 2022. Yeah, apparently, because I'm not busy enough as it stands. Yeah, <laughs> we've got most. We've got most of them done. And also, I'm David's like tried to move things around over the years and expand the sound, but I'm very much old school wedding present. I sort of came on board after George Best, so Bizarro Sea Monsters, and and the last time they did a single a month, the Hit Parade. They're my th- sort of trio of just wedding present albums to love so it's that hopefully sort of classic wedding present sound that i'm going for that i think you've changed your gear as well haven't you because you're normally playing is it an art ibanez art core with sleeper but you're playing a telly with yeah that's that's what this that's what the guitarist plays in that lineup over the years i would rather have a large body guitar because it disguises my inevitable middle-aged weight gain 
but um they that's why i play a white falcon it covers yeah. basically from my knees to my chest yeah but that's exactly why i got you know the hollow body but uh sadly david gets to play that one in the wedding present so i don't there's quite a lot of it on the record that sounded good um on the various tracks we've done and um another you know just a great top line writer and a really good lyricist which you can't people obviously a band's only as good as its drummer but um you need a good top line writer and lyricist as well i think and a distinctive voice and mm. uh, i kind of like david because it, 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 it the um he writes he plays that one for of the great love song and does it brilliantly and um i kind of got interested in the psychology of that because there are sort of different ways that people write about relationships from different perspectives and his being that kind of northern bloke in relationship uh is one particular one that i kind of identify with but the psychology behind it not to pull it back to the book but that the last chapter on the book is that one that looks at evolutionary psychology and religion and um evolutionary psychology is a very difficult subject to to grasp it's a very simple one we don't have a problem with our diet we all know something along the lines of the raw food diet the paleo diet you know we used to eat in a certain way and now we don't and we live in a Mm. food toxic environment which is why we all need like prefer a larger guitar and (laughs) um and that's largely because of our our food preferences evolved over hundreds of thousands of probably millions of years when we when we we were surviving in a calorie scarce environment so we're triggered hugely by sugars and um uh so those kind of evolutionary things that are embedded in our psychology can be quite tricky to talk about and um i think david does it quite unknowingly with his love songs uh you can see them occasionally in relationship songs um you know the shape of you is clearly you, you would imagine an evolutionary psychologist i'm not i'm just riffing here but an evolutionary psychologist may well say the shape of you is a guy singing about girl because men are visually stimulated whereas put a ring on it uh is clearly from a woman's perspective because in in the evolutionary psychology of relationships which is where it gets really difficult that's men and women have different preferences in terms of what what they what they look for and that's a really challenging area to go down and not one that i genuinely explore very much the two areas two safe areas right food because we all know the whole sugar evolutionary cycle. You know, imagine when sugar was as rare as it was in the, in the ancient environment, when fruits were a tenth the size of what they are today, mm. when an apple was as big as your thumb and bitter as hell and contained maybe seven calories and you existed almost entirely on roots that you dug up. You know, no one craves cabbage. You've never, ever heard anyone say, I have the first cabbage leaf. I just can't help but finish the head. <laughs> right? No. Whereas chocolate, <laughs> no said that. chocolate, first <laughs> chocolate out of the box, it's gone. And that's because it triggers a thing. And, and um, so it's fine to talk about. And I, in the Dylan and Lennon one, I use evolutionary psychology and religion because I'd had a faith experience when I joined Narcotics Anonymous. And uh, quite, quite, it's quite a spiritual program. And then I lost that faith after about 14 years. And still stayed you know active and in recovery and stuff but i was really interested in the processes of how those things happen to you and both dylan and lennon 
were avowed atheists at various periods in their early life and then both had quite strong supernatural experiences um and i think dylan still is very much a uh, loads of his songs even pretty much one song on every album he's done since his so-called great religious trilogy um is a very very strong christian song on pretty much every album um if you look for it and he he's he's just those tropes crop tropes crop up on all his radio shows and you know there's hundreds of quotes from the bible as a literary source and, and lennon you know fascinated by numerology and Egyptology and Vedic traditions and all that stuff and, and just careers from one crazy uh, supernatural form to another, including like crazy diets and the Osho diet and all this kind of weird stuff. And um, so they're both, whilst they're both great, inspiring, revolutionary, independent thinkers, they're both extremely vulnerable to these spiritual, religious, thought reform practices it's very it's very much part of rock and roll though isn't it because you could say you know a lot of robert johnson songs mm. which is probably the oh, starting yeah. point yeah but also little richard is in yeah. the same boat jerry lee lewis is in the so same boat the argument is and i was expanding exploring this with someone who'd sort of grown up as an atheist you know yorkshire minor strike went to went to university to become a you know, agitator or whatever very strong atheist then had a faith experience and then lost it about 14 years later so it's just evolutionary psychology has a very very strong explanatory system for how those things work and it's to do with you know our respect for our forebears our ability to have a conversation with someone who's not in the room uh which which we do in our heads when i get home i must tell my partner this you know so you're yeah your your our ability to separate mind and body the, the mind-body duality, all of these things invite ultimately religious ideas into our lives and spiritual ideas. And, and it's a very strong way of organising ourselves because it doesn't involve violence because we're quite weak uh, as mammals go, yet we evolved to act collectively it's so efficiently that we managed to wipe out all the other large mammals that were threats to us, whether it's saber-toothed tigers or mammoths, you, you, in evolutionary terms, you look at humans arrive in North America within a few thousand years, all the mammoths have gone, all the saber-toothed tigers have gone. Literally, it's like a light switch going off. All the horses, American Indians had horses when they Indians, indigenous Americans yeah. grew up with horses and then the, the, they just ate them all. You know, although they've managed to do a better job of, of, of curating the buffalo herds and, and they, you know, which which became staples their their life. So it's this idea that we romanticize these old societies about somehow being at one with nature. I, I think it's it, it's um, it's a bit of that sort of noble savage myth. And, and we've been at, at war in nature desperately trying to survive as quite weak animals ever since we evolved and the way we've managed to do that is through the ability to act collectively and communicate with each other at a very high level compared to any other monkey slash chimp slash common ancestor the psychology that inspires religion is the same psychology that inspires collective action our moral precepts we have basic moral precepts that we all agree on that are evolved and 
lots of other things like that. Our ability to use language and all that. Uh, shame's a great one. You know, imagine, imagine 150. We, we, it seems likely that we evolved in group sizes of around 150, which is roughly the amount of associates you can keep in a diary today, in a in a in, a, in your phone today, kind of constantly. Imagine a hundred guys with burning sticks trying to trying to herd a mammoth off a cliff top so that they can then carve it up and and eat it and and make clothes out of it or a, or a buffalo or whatever. Mm. You know the one guy hanging back who's doing the sensible thing about oh I'll just I'll just let your man uh, go up the front now because that thing's really big and really angry. You know that's where guilt and shame it it's argued come from. That's like dude, you need to get up here and. And so guilt evolves as, as a, a feeling to enable us to, to do the moral correct thing. And shaping it, shame evolves as a tool for us to encourage others to do that because we don't want to be shamed. And the worst thing that could happen to you in the evolutionary time, which let's not forget is 99% of human existence, pre all pre-contemporary culture, our modern cultural world has existed for a tiny fraction of like humans looking just like you and me have been on this world earth um yeah so the the ability to act collectively became really important and that's where you know group think and religious ideas and you know religious ideas inspire people to act together when they've never even met each other without anything without any need for any physical violence which is quite a powerful thing which is why i think ultimately even great thinkers like dylan you know or great activists or brilliantly independent people you know famously obstreperous individualistic thinkers who just go out on their own like bob dylan and john lennon are equally as vulnerable to those kind of psychological mechanisms as anyone else so the evolutionary psychology thing i think it's a fascinating area it's um um, it's a dangerous one because because it's allied with a lot of quite conservative politics, and I think ultimately it's either true or it's not. And if it is true that we carry evolutionary ghosts in our thinking, then progressive people need to jump on board and work out how that can be a helpful thing to help us solve some of our problems. Say diet, or say you know thought thought reform in an unhealthy way. Uh, you know unhealthy forms of group think and things like that which are very well explained and um you know that i, I just did a chapter in a book um called one hit wonders on uh sugar sugar by the archies right oh yeah which basically argues that it sugar 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 is used as a metaphor for romantic desire or romantic mm. plus sexual desire and they're both triggering the same reward systems and they're both completely necessary for us to have survived. Everybody, all, all of us on this Zoom call, everyone listening to this podcast, is part of an unbroken chain of life that runs back possibly four billion years. The first single cell animal that that came out of you know the, the was whatever sea was there at the time, and that's through reproduction, surprised. reproduction, and 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 food. And there it is in Sugar Sugar by the Archies. Oh, it's fascinating. When, when you said in the book that Lennon didn't believe in evolution. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, Did that's really? one of them. Yeah, both of them. John Lennon, within months of each other, John Lennon, because of the Vedic tradition. So in Hinduism, 
you believe in evolution, but not human evolution. And Hare Krishnaism, my partner's a Hare mm. Krishna. They don't believe humans are wrong. You know, you've got to remember cows are sacred because they reincarnate into humans. Yeah. So, you know, that's not exactly Darwinian uh, scheme of, of, of biology. So um, the great, one of the great ironies and one of the brilliant things about geobiography, this idea that uh, from Eloise and Pay that by looking at two people together, you discover more than you would as an individual, um, uh, is this idea that within months of each other in the late 70s, they both publicly, very, very forcefully denied any possibility of human evolution. Um, Dylan, because he joined a fundamentalist Christian church that um, became a young earth creationist, and Lennon, because he was still very much, you know, people say Lennon wasn't spiritual. He was. He was very much mired in the Vedic traditions and the, in the Vedic traditions, humans didn't evolve. And he literally says, I don't believe we came from monkeys. I don't believe that. That's garbage. Now, what was the discovery that caused Lennon to make that statement? It was the so-called missing link, which is Lucy, the early hominin, yeah. named after Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by John Lennon, which is just <laughs> this incredible, weird, you know. And there's Lennon going, I don't believe in all that. We came from monkey stuff. And the whole reason why in the 70s that's news is because anthropologists had discovered, discovered this quote-unquote missing link, and along with Turkana Boy and all these early human skeletons, hominin pre-Homo sapiens, started being discovered in, in various valleys around Ethiopia and stuff. Um, and the very first one, the one that hit the headlines, they were going to name it a traditional name, but they'd had a tape of of um, Sergeant Peppers playing endlessly in the camp that they were in. So they called her Lucy, because they thought it was a female, they called her Lucy, after Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds, Lennon's own song, which is just brilliant. And then a few months later, he's like, yeah, that's garbage. Don't believe that. Do you ever think, though, because I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of both of the artists. And, you know, I, I've read a lot more about the Beatles than I have Dylan. And when I say I'm a big fan of Dylan, I'm really a big fan of Dylan in that sort of 60s mm. period with a couple of albums in the 70s. And after that, I'm kind of done because he starts doing that weird voice thing that he does. Um, but sometimes I read sort of like interviews with him and I went, are they just bored and taking the piss? Mm. Are they just literally making this shit up for column inches? Yeah, I think he became just such a huge figure. And I guess the challenge is that he was on his own and uh, and the Beatles were a gang, so they had each other to support each other, much in the, you know, in the way maybe Ringo did when, when Lennon was doing sort of inadvisable public gestures mm. and in their songwriting as well. So Dylan, maybe you could argue, loses track on a few albums, whereas... The Beatles, you know, they might they might have famously, you know, the white so-called white album might be a better off as one disc rather than two, but but there's still some great stuff on it, you know. Or when Lennon's struggling to create McCartney's pushing it forward, as you see in Lady B and and so and and then you get McCartney sort of re-saccharine songwriting and then Lennon's like one note straight to the truth stuff. I love that bit in Get Back where and forgive me, I can't remember what the exact words are, but like uh, McCartney's strumming a guitar and it's like, I saw us standing there and Lennon just looks up and goes, waiting. 
would be better. Yeah. And that and that's his only contribution to mm-hmm. it, but it just changes it so it's right. Yeah. And I, but that's the great thing about that collaborative songwriting element. Sometimes it is just a one word, and and that's because it's it's when you're with an artist who's a great lyricist, they could write a really really great lyric, and and you've got the luxury of being able to just read this thing they've poured their heart and soul into it and go, well, if you change that one word there. That's it just becomes a work of genius then, and because the, they're too close to the trees to see it, and I have yeah. I've seen that happen, and been involved in that process occasionally, and just been able to have because you've got the headspace to find the metaphor that works when when they they're so married to what they've done and they're so mired in it, they're so you know absolutely they worked through it and they've created it from nothing. And they've created this really good thing. And then to have, as Lennon does that, to have someone go, how about you put that word in? Which is, you know, a great thing of the collaborative process, whereas Dylan didn't have that. So uh, I think he's more vulnerable to that kind of thing, although much more cynical and much more world-weary than I think John was, which is, you know, it goes back to the whole protesting about why he stepped away from that. And and Lennon much more naively dove into it, being completely naive about the realities of American political. I always life. got the impression, and I've met—I've never met John Lennon, obviously—but I've met a few people that have been very passionate, peace, love. And I—I I always look at them and go, "What are you hiding? Mm. How much of a dick were you before you kind of flipped a, a one eighty? And and the stuff I've read about Lennon, and you know, I have no idea how much that I can't remember what that film's called with. Um, oh, what was the? Well, they're, they're basically the Hamburg days, and they've got the bass player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Backbeat is it? Backbeat. Carnegie Hall. He... That's the venue. Carnegie Hall. There you Carnegie go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a podcast full of middle-aged men trying yeah, to remember yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't taken my pills yet today. I'm sorry. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, I just wondered whether Lennon, because I mean, he kind of admits to being quite violent younger, and I just wondered whether the peace stuff was trying to atone in his own head. Yeah, I think for the stuff th- that he'd done. I think to possibly to a certain extent, and um, I don't know. I mean, I'm. I think you have a when you you have a lot more energy when you're younger, and sometimes it's misdirected, and and um, I'm just. I I I think when I was younger, I was very intensely political and I'm, I'm trying to be less so today and just someone who just tries to study things and you know do no harm sort of vibe rather than actively I guess I'm suspicious of of whenever a movement happens it's always a radical person with the with the, the bullhorn isn't it leading it often pulling along a lot of other people who sort of see something good but on perhaps on the same page as 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 the, the original motivator was. I mean, even the minor strike, you know, we never had a ballot over that. I think the, a lot of the Yorkshire miners who joined in with that in good faith, including members of my family, and suffered terribly because of it. Um, they were supporting Scargill, who was a pretty radical figure who never held a ballot on that, proper ballot on that strike. And um, so it's... it's um, it's interesting that the leaders are, don't often represent the people that they assume they do. 
they're usually much more radical. And I think that's Dylan's story in a way. You know, you look at the people Lennon got involved with in New York in the early 70s. Politic- I mean, John Lennon absolutely fell fell headfirst into the Fourth International. You know, Tarek Ali and 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 pretty ups- pretty culty workers' revolutionary type party. Um, Len- actually, not workers' revolutionary, more Leninist. So more sort of more about sort of the vanguard revolutionary communist party type stuff. The sort of intellectual vanguard that are going to lead the people to to victory over capitalism and and absolutely launched himself headfirst into that. And it, some of those movements can be quite culty. Uh, you know, I was around SWP for a while, and then I was like, wow, this just feels weird. I don't know. I'm not in Scientology. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and because you want, you want to do good, but you just don't, you know, you don't necessarily know what the right thing to do is. They can be very convincing because there's a kernel of truth in it, in all of it. And um, I guess Dylan's just much more cynical and much more standoffish and very rarely got involved in any, but, you know, stood off from Live Aid, says the wrong thing at Live Aid purposefully because he doesn't want to be part. He's suspicious about movements as a whole and almost never gets involved in them. And I think most most English people underestimate the role of transcendentalism, which is this great sort of in romantic 19th century American literary movement principally that, that was all about the individual and and Thoreau and, you know, march to the beat of a different drum and all that stuff, which if you grew up in Europe or the United Kingdom and you went to university in the 80s or 90s, you learn about Marx and, and collective action and the labour tradition. And in America, you learned about, um, certainly on the East Coast and in the, the sort of middle of America where, where Dylan grew up, you learn much more about nature and and individualism, which are the, the central tenets of the transcendental movement, which we don't really know that much about here. And it's often overlooked in his work. How much Dylan, the great voice of a generation, what are the metaphors he uses? They're biblical metaphors and they're weather metaphors because he grew up in the plains in, in America. Mm. And, and, you know, pretty much every, including his song about John Lennon, it's got wind. It's about the wind and the storms and all that stuff. You know, he grew up on, he was born on the edge of the Great Lakes where these huge storms would wreak havoc. You know, it's like an inland sea and very, very, you know, hot and humid in summer and cold and blowy in winter. And you, you know about the weather if you live in that part of the world. And, uh, and you know, hurricanes in, in September and stuff. You know, he's got a song called Hurricane, for God's sake. It's like... He has. It's one of my favourites. His very, his very first Dylan, Bob Dylan radio show is, is about the weather. The first song he plays in it, Blow Wind Blow. Like, blowing in the wind. All of his songs, huge amounts of his songs have got biblical and, and weather metaphors. And, and they're about the individual. So he very rarely uses collective nouns. It's all about I you know i and i is one song for example although it's not necessarily a protest song but lots of his songs are about individual experiences and even when he does use collective nouns it's it's the story of a small you know a couple of people involved in some situation like in oxford town he uses he uses a collective number it's just him and his girlfriend getting involved in this in this um protest he's not part of the protest he's just him and his 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 partner at the time are swept up in it so it's like 
he's very much an individualist and Dil, uh, and Lennon's very much kind of a British, traditional British class-based thinker. I, uh, that's what I take from their music and their lyrics. And, and, and that's, you know, he, Lennon's in the band, Dylan's. Dylan, although he wants a band, he never really gets one together. He works with about 60 different musicians, mm. uh, gets a band together, and within about four years, he's literally worked with 60 different musicians. Um, you know, so he he's ploughing his own furrow. He's very much an individualist. I, th- I, was, I, was, reading, um, I was reading a biography uh, on the Heartbreakers, mm. who were, of course, his backing band at some point in the 70s. 80s possibly 80s early 80s and and after a couple of years of being his backing band they were just pretty much broken and had to just basically retire and go back to america and become the heartbreakers again because it was just so exhausting Mm. you know which is funny because then tom petty goes on to form the traveling wilburys yes with him and that's one of the few times he does get involved in a in a a group in a gang you know that and the church Mm. situation that's one of the few times he does and and um, I think that w- with the church, it's obviously something very personal, deep happens inside. He feels, you know, he finds he finds Jesus and God, and that's that's going to be a life changing experience for anybody who goes through that journey. So that's something that it's so profound, it absolutely reorients his entire worldview away from his individualism towards this collective vineyard church movement that he joins, um, which has got to be a pretty shattering event for any individual psychologically it clearly absolutely changed his thinking at a you know very fundamental level for the period that it lasted and um with the traveling wilburys again i think that's a musician thing he he was with songwriters and musicians particularly roy orbson's massive roy orbson fan writes about orbson for pages in his memoir and um gets to be in a band with him so who you know it's like me during the wedding process like yeah who's not who's going to say no to that like obviously so that that's the you know you find god or you find a great band that's the 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 one time he's going to step away from that individualist tradition but in the united kingdom and europe i think where mo which is where most until recently most dylan scholars have come from we under we don't really get that individualist tradition i think he's probably much more small c conservative american most of us would like to think yeah you know, well i mean that's just the thing with american politics though isn't it you you know i can remember a school teacher telling me when i was asking about republican or democrat mm. sort of thing and they went well it's like voting conservative or vo- like voting tory mm. yeah that the, there is no left no. in america there's just small c or big c but if you read his memoir which is a really interesting document Dylan, like it's all about family it's all about, he, he blatantly says, my favourite 60s American politician was Barry Goldwater, who was a pretty right-wing conservative Republican. And people are like, well, he's just having a laugh, isn't he? I'm like, well, no, he's written a book about his life. He's, you're suggesting he just put that in to wind you up. Maybe it's true, you know. Uh, and and maybe he he stepped back because maybe like you suggested he found found something a bit more sinister in in a lot of holier than thou people that he was hanging around with, and he just wanted to just like step back from it to a certain extent. And that sounds quite reasonable when you think about the pressure he has been put under to be the voice of a generation, and um, the the ego. Yeah, you know, Bob Dylan found Jesus, which is quite. A, 
humble thing to do. You surrender yourself to God to the extent that he pissed off his entire fan base. John Lennon, the big political campaigner, thought he was Jesus. He called a meeting of the band to say, I think I'm the second coming. And Ringo's like, well, I'm going for lunch. And he goes off and has an egg and chips down the road. But, but isn't that the great thing about being... Uh, mates can say that stuff. When you're being a dick, only really good mates can kind of go, whatever, mate, and just kind of bring you straight back down to earth. But I think I think that's the difference in sort of the ego between... I think John bought into his own, you know, ideas maybe more than Bob did, and it left him vulnerable politically and and spiritually into lots of strange cult stuff. I mean, if you look at the various thought reform movements that Lennon's been involved with, um, there's a long list of them, you know, from strange diet things to, to, um, you know, uh, the song Mother, which is his version of primal screen therapy. He just goes one after the other. And there's a a great Freudian analysis of him in a book, The Beatles and and Lacan, that that I mentioned before we started recording, that basically suggests his his story is is a lifelong search for a father figure, which, you know, starts off with the band's manager and then George Martin, who's a producer, and then sort of slips into various political figures and religious figures, and he's just bouncing from one to the other because, because his dad, you know, left to join the Merchant Navy. And there's this incredible moment when he he, I can't remember how old he was six or nine or whatever it was where his his dad and his mum take him to Blackpool and go you know his dad at the time was going to Australia or New Zealand and they're like you choose and he walks off with his dad to go to New Zealand and then gets halfway down the pier and turns around and run back runs back to be with his mum you know it's uh that's pretty profound Freudian thing going on there and uh it reappears in his music and his relationships i think throughout his life some of which are quite political the way that he is such a powerful culturally powerful individual just buys into quite a lot of you know the yippie movement when he gets to new york stuff that's pretty nonsensical and he's feet first straight in no question yeah i'll do that you know it's quite a bizarre way of behaving for someone who is who has become taken over from Bob Dylan as the voice of a generation, the single most important popular music songwriter of his era, the most culturally individual, influential, you could argue, songwriter and and musician of the post-war era, if you had to pick one, him and Elvis, you know, just absolutely gung-ho for any crazy idea that comes along. (laughs) Yeah, he's supposed to be this great... uh, you know, individualist thinker and or activist or whatever, but but it's just one yeah. thing after another, which I think is quite endearing in a way. But I I do think though that um, when you you're exposed to that much mm. fame, I, you know, I mean, is it any different to Britney Spears studying a shop, shaving her head? Yeah. You know, it, it's when we got you know. I, I never got any fame whatsoever. I think if I had have had even a modicum of success, I'd have been a bloody lunatic. As Louise describes it, fame is a mental mental illness, and I think it. Yeah, I think it's perfectly natural thing, but way for him to have responded to it. 
in a way. I, mean, I, I drank enough in my 20s without being in a band. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Without being in a successful band, I should say. Um, so, anyway, we should probably wrap it up because we've been yakking for much longer than we said we were going to yak for. I hope this makes been, sense. Back, That's the main thing. This is probably the most intellectual podcast we have ever done. And given that last week we were interviewing Frank Bello from Anthrax. Excellent. It's wow. very wow. much night and day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for having me on. And that was John Stewart. Uh, and I'm now chatting to Jace, and it's a couple of weeks after we've recorded that. And I've I've heard that for the first time this afternoon, and it's a fascinating conversation, Jay. I really enjoyed it. I've uh, I've known John for a few years. Um, we we both had a similar job at BIM, uh, me in Birmingham, him at Brighton. And uh, when I started, I found him really intimidating, <laughs> like because he's so smart. But actually, it turns out he's a really nice guy. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I also enjoyed nerding out about Lennon and Dylan, really. Yeah, really cool. well, it's, a, it's, I mean, it is a bit of a different chat for us, but it's, it, it's, for something that's quite highbrow, it's also very accessible. Um, <sighs> I don't think I've ever sense. done anything highbrow in my life. No, no, well, well no, and to be fair, it's, it's, it's a complete curveball for me as well. You're doing something highbrow, if, if I'm being honest. Um, but no, I th- and do you know what? Quite nice every once in a while to hear one of these that I've not heard before. Because obviously, yeah. not being in the session, it's uh, it, it, it's it's like being a punter. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I did. Um, the one thing we must do is thank Focusrite. Um, yes. um, because obviously they're they're beautiful and wonderful and brilliant. They continue to support the podcast. Um, so thank you very much uh, for continuing to do what you do. Um and uh, and and that's about it. I'm I'm just about to go. I'm having a late Sunday tea. So ah, well, I've just cooked Sunday dinner. Have you? Yeah, yeah. We've just uh, just finished washing up, which is always right. the worst part of Sunday dinner. Right. Well, this is this is the last bit of anything I'm doing. Then I'm going to have a glass of uh, a glass of red wine with a with a bit of Sunday tea. Lovely. Right. Well, have fun. Yes, you too. And I'll catch up with you soon. All right, mate. See you later. Bye. Yeah, take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production. Hold up. 